Hello and good morning, everybody. Hey, this is Shelly Fraser Mickle in Florida waiting for the podcast. Well, you've come to the right person. Oh, good. <laughs> is this Arrow Collins? It is. You, you pronounced that correctly. Thank you so much. I did? Yeah. Oh, well, give me a minute so I can pat myself on the back. <laughs> yeah, damn. <laughs> right, right off the bat, i got to ask you, how come this generation has not heard of Alice? My, I'm sitting here talking with my wife, and I'm going, I've never heard of Alice. I know. Isn't it weird? She's evaporated from history, and to me, it's just extraordinary. Um, you, are you ready for me to talk about the book? Or I, I want to talk up? about the book. I want to talk about you. I want to talk about oh. everything. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's go then. <laughs> <laughs> Who was she? Uh, part of what stuns me is just what you expressed. How did she evaporate? How do we not know about her? Because she was the first Princess Diana. And then our obsession from uh, Alice moved on to our obsession with Jackie Kennedy. Yes. And today I'm comparing uh, Alice to Taylor Swift. <laughs> Because Taylor Swift is influencing a whole generation of young women, just as Alice did. And what was crazy about Alice's day was in that time, a woman's name didn't appear in the newspaper except when they were getting married or were already dead. And yet Alice generated more newsprint than even her father, even when he was president. In fact, they competed to see who was more popular and Alice always won. <laughs> I, I wonder how many readers are going to pick this book up and ask that question. Is this real? And, and because, I mean, because, the, because it's such a big secret, but yet everybody knew about it. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, to that fact, the book only came out October the 3rd. And a journalist here in Gainesville asked if he could write a review of it or, or a feature article. And so I think he was the first person to read the book. And he called me up afterward, and he said, Shelly, you made all this up, didn't yeah. you? Yeah. <laughs> it reads like a novel. But he knew that I had been on uh, National Public Radio for years as a storyteller. I can make up anything. I, make up, I made up a fictional family for NPR storyteller. But when I decided to switch novel writing to writing narrative history, uh, I knew I would have to be careful because the nonfiction police would come and get me. Yep. So everything in this book is documented. Every word and dialogue is documented. I knew I was in danger. And so um, it's. But I used uh, novelist skills to put it together so that it does read like a novel, like a story. So let me tell you a little bit about the complicated relationship Alice had with her father. Please do. Oh, you ready? I'm ready. So, <laughs> Alice's beloved mother was named Alice Hathaway Lee. And little Alice was named after her because, get this, when little Alice was only two days old, her mother died of kidney failure. Oh, no. And to make matters worse, her mother died in Teddy Roosevelt's arms on the same day that Teddy Roosevelt's mother died. Oh, man. Can you get that? They died in the mansion next to Central Park. And they're those two deaths in one day, two funerals in one day, more or less paralyzed Teddy Roosevelt. He was so um, devastated with grief. When he held little Alice for her baptism, he couldn't look her in the eye nor say her name. And in time, she interpreted his silence as disapproval. So she came up with all sorts of outrageous antics to capture his attention. 
and her outrageousness made her famous. And the really uh, amazing part of this was she was pathologically shy. She never spoke in public. So I want to paint this picture of uh, Alice arriving in Washington to move into the White House. And I want to add right here uh, just a chilling fact. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt became president when President William McKinley was assassinated. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can't leave the presidency open for a minute. So they sent for him by telegram and messages. And as soon as he heard, he was furious because he said the man that murdered William McKinley was not shooting at the man, he was shooting at government. That echoes so much into what we're living through today. And from that moment on, T.R. carried his own pistol. So we have a lot here to see this history echoing into what we're living today, and the benefit is we can see how to do things better. So uh, when Alice arrived in Washington, D.C. on the train, I want to paint this picture to get how she appeared, because after that, the country, in fact, the whole world went nuts over her. She got off the train wearing a wine dress, and she had a bouquet of violets in her waistband. She didn't expect any of this. It was a shock for her father to suddenly ascend to the presidency. So when she got off the train in her beautiful 17-year-old sexual body, walked to the waiting carriage, the flash bulbs on those first cameras began popping and uh, smoke blowing. They used powder to do that. And uh, she soon became the most photographed woman in the world. So to uh, get her, get back at her father, this is a, a field study in passive aggressive behavior. Because <laughs> she it would do anything to get his attention and hopefully approval. If she couldn't get his approval, she wanted his disapproval (laughs) that's pretty fun isn't it so she started carrying in her purse a copy of the constitution a dagger and a green snake named emily spinach nice and when her father told her she couldn't smoke under his roof she climbed to the roof of the white house and smoked there (laughs) isn't that fun and and get this another uh scene i like to paint she would go to the white house garden parties when her father invited all the congressmen and she would take emily spinach her green snake out of her purse and wear the snake as jewelry nice and then in a passive aggressive joy love the looks on the congressman's faces as her snake explored the folds in her dress <laughs> i love Can her you imagine wit. anything more passive aggressive than that so uh, i'll very quickly tell you a few good reasons to read this book I've been in a lot of book clubs, well, not a lot, but a handful, and always the husbands and boyfriends tiptoe in to steal our snacks, Yep. and we wish that they would stay. So I think I've written a book that will um, men will enjoy as much as women readers, and I fully believe that reading can help us in our crisis of mental health because you spend moments alone Mm -hmm. in silence with print on a page and you're matching your mind with a storyteller's mind and in my instance uh, absorbing a great rich american history that we can all benefit in 
it's storytelling. And and I think that just just like reading, if if people you know adapt to becoming podcast listeners or a reader, they begin to share their own stories. And you're right, we need to get back to doing that because there's a lot of human stories in this country that aren't being shared. Even the Native Americans are going through that. They can't get the younger generation to write about the elders. Oh, yeah. And so I think this is important. Thank you for pointing that out. So one of the things I want to have people pay attention to and talk about after they read this book is the effect of a father on a daughter. Um, young woman learns her self-worth mainly through the way that her father values her and treats her. And now that I've been on radio for two weeks talking about this book, I've had several radio hosts who are single and say they're dating, and they can immediately pick out when a young woman has had a strong father figure in her life because they don't fall in love with the first person that gives them a a good feeling. Mm -hmm. They make better life choices. So I think it's very important that we bring up and maybe engender a national conversation on fathers and daughters, not just fathers and sons. I've raised one of both, a son and a daughter, and I know I could always tell my daughter she was smart and beautiful, but she didn't believe it. It had to come from a man yep. Yep. and in a man's voice before those words really resonated. And, of course, that first male voice should be the father, and I was lucky enough to have that for my daughter. But in this book, you can see very clearly the effects of Alice not having a father who joined up with her. valued her just for her existence, not for what she did. And she did plenty to get his (laughs) disapproval or worry. Um, It's a wonder that she didn't become uh, accident-prone. A lot of children that have these issues do uh, learn to hurt themselves to get attention. So Alice knew that her father relished toughness above anything. So she was tough. She never gave in. And I can tell you more about that later. But my second um, point about why to read this movie, this book, <laughs> to convince readers to pick it up, is that um, as, she, as Alice pushed against the culture's boundaries, she uh, encouraged women to, uh, do, uh, to change our culture. She couldn't vote until she was 36 years old. Oh I found that amazing. Oh, man. And when the 19th Amendment was passed, 126 million women voted in the 1920 presidential election. That alone is proof of the uh, effect that young women can have on our political Mm -hmm. discourse Mm -hmm. and um, uh, political practice. One reason that I was drawn to write this book, a major reason is, and I share this fully, I was raised in Faulknerland, Mississippi Delta, and I went to the University of Mississippi because I wanted to be a writer. Mm -hmm. And I knew that Faulkner had won the Nobel Prize in Literature, and he lived right next to the campus. See, I'm so old. (laughs) (laughs) I can tell you that story. (laughs) So I wrote him a letter. I told him I was coming, and I said, I hear that you know a good bit about writing, Mm -hmm. and I hope that if you see me walking across the campus, you'll come introduce yourself. So uh, isn't that amazing when you're 18, you do stuff like that? Oh, yeah. So anyway, uh, he died right before I got there, and I took it personally. I thought he had gone to great lengths to avoid me. So anyway, uh, he told writers, though, I studied everything he 
said about writing or wrote about writing, and he said to young writers, don't write about the nuclear age. Write about the heart in conflict with itself. Yeah. And Alice certainly was the um, embodiment of that because she lived a haunted childhood. No one could talk about her mother because the death was so painful, and her father couldn't tell her how much he had loved the mother and passed on that uh, unconditional love to her. So in my research, I found that moment when she underwent a transformative change. I call it enormous changes at the last minute, which it, it holds hope for any of us. We can always get better. She turned, She had a daughter, I can't say out of wedlock, but it was not with her husband. Mm. <laughs> she married the Speaker of the House. Ooh. And this is interesting. You can listen for it in the news because the Longworth Building in Washington, D.C. is where a lot of the Congress meets. You can hear it mentioned. So he was a, gr- a great pol- politician, and he was a great speaker, but he was an alcoholic and a philanderer. Hmm. And so when he played around on her, Alice played around on him. And she fell in love with a senator from Idaho, Bill Bora, B-O-R-A-H. And she had a daughter with him. And um, she teased her husband, Nick, by saying, I'm going to name that baby uh, Deborah and spell it D-O-B-O-R-H just to needle him. (laughs) (laughs) And nobody could get anything past Alice's meanness. Her antics moved into meanness as she aged. I was wondering. She was like the first Twitter. Yeah. Uh, she could skewer a politician with just one little phrase and ruin their whole career. Wow. But when she was 73, that daughter died of a drug overdose. What? Yes. Wow. And Alice, that woke Alice up, and she realized she'd been a terrible mother, and she was mean, and she wanted to change her life and be remembered for something good. She always made fun of Eleanor Roosevelt, who was her <laughs> first cousin, yep. for being good. And Alice <laughs> never wanted to be seen as being good. But at the age of 73, she changed completely. She took her granddaughter and raised her with the unconditional love and attention and care that she always wanted for herself. And she died saying that she should have always been a grandmother, not a mother. Oh. Isn't that (laughs) So this makes this book much more than um, surface exploration of a dynamic but uh, mischievous young girl. It makes it very deep, in my uh, opinion, and also riveting in terms of a life story. You know, Alice, I said lived to six uh, to uh, 96 wow because she was feisty enough oh yeah <laughs> and strong enough but i would just want to add this i don't know how much more time we have because i could chat until the cows come home <laughs> <laughs> so, but what men will love of course i love it too that sounds uh not exactly proper for me to say but um In my research, every instance I found when uh, T.R. was guiding the nation through a crisis and Alice was sitting at his knee, I included that in the book. So that she, you can actually see T.R. practicing politics as an art. And by that I mean that what he did as president is like an iceberg. You can see what was above the surface, but what was below 
was how he brought it all about. And sometimes it was not pretty. Mm. But uh, he always called himself, he was not a party man, but a moralist. Mm -hmm. In fact, he said in the last moments of his um, presidency, he set all this land aside. We have a state park. That's it. As executive orders. And he said it was a moral rather than a political issue to take care of the earth. And also, I want people to know he was the first president to be awarded a Nobel Peace Prize. Mm -hmm. Isn't that amazing? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, here's homework. You ready? (laughs) (laughs) All right, you be the teacher. (laughs) (laughs) Well, for my listeners, here's a puzzle. When he ended the Russian-Japanese War, he used uh, Alice as a decoy to take the press away with her antics and their obsession with her so that his secretary of war William Taft could go meet with the diplomats from both countries Russia and Japan to ask them what would they want in a treaty to stop the damn fighting yeah yeah <laughs> and then TR invited them all to Portsmouth New Hampshire and he got out the presidential yacht and prettied it up and had food and stewards he stayed away he was a big enough man to know he was not going to do the final treaty. He sent people to do it. But get this, the one thing he did that I want people to savor, he figured out, because he was a genius, that people, the diplomats, would argue about who sat next to whom, who had more power in the negotiations. So he set up all the tables with no chairs. Oh, wow. And so they had to stand up to eat. Now, think again. This is your homework. We followed that rule or that protocol when we ended the Vietnam War. So what's really fun in my book is to see how the actions, the political actions, have been followed by some president uh, in modern times. And, of course, JFK was a student of history, and he took a lot of the techniques from T.R., and so it's fun to look, especially for me. It was like a, an eye-opener. Now, am I going on too long? Are you ready to play the music and get me off? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to you. <laughs> yeah, we still have a couple more minutes. <laughs> okay. Well, let me very quickly tell you this. Because my editor cut out 100 pages. I was going to ask so you about with that. PR yep. and the research. Yep. But I want to tell you something that's not in the book. And I predict that every man on the planet is going to love this. So when T.R. went to the Badlands to try to work off his grief from losing his wife and mother in one day, you know, he stayed out there many, uh, off and on uh, several years. And so he was riding uh, his horse, and I've memorized every horse name because I'm a horse person. So little Manitou, his horse, he was out on alone in the Badlands, searching for grazing land for his cattle. And suddenly, a group of Native Americans or Indians rode up and looked very menacing. They just stopped and looked at him, and he realized, he or he supposed, that they would chase him and either torture him or kill him. Yeah. So he did the unexpected thing. He got off his horse, and he stood with his rifle, just held it against him, not pointing at anything, and he did not do or say anything. And after a while, that group of um, threats of Native Americans rode off and left him. So I interpret that 
as being his taking on as president to carry, uh, to speak softly and carry a big stick, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which is we know of him. But I think that's a very male response. And what was really fun for me was interpret history in that way to say this probably led to his personality taking on that knowledge of how he could face someone and um, uh, diffuse a, a really angry situation or an unknown threatening situation, put it that way. The the story you just shared with me is, I've read about that so many different times, because in, in Native American spirituality, that's a game of coup. What he did was a game of coup. Where, In fact, I have a coup stick, and what you do is you go into the area where it could be your worst enemy or just a family member in a different, different uh, tribe, but what you do is you go in basically with a stick, and you touch them or you touch yourself. And, and that's, you just told me the story of a game of coup. Oh, that's fascinating. Thank you for telling me that. Because I think it's a pivotal moment in TR's diplomatic skills. Yeah. Isn't this fun? Yes, it is. You know, th- th- this has <laughs> got to be turned into like a nine-part series on Netflix, and it has to be it has to be narrated by you because I mean, oh, oh my, be- because you dive so <laughs> I'm an deep old woman, into the. But I'm hanging on by my fingernails. <laughs> in, in fact, let me end with this. <laughs> uh, A great historian said to me that we live with delusions until history changes us. So every night I put a big, thick history book on my bedside table. So if I die in the middle of the night, it will make me look good. (laughs) (laughs) you got to promise me that you're going to come back to this show in the future. I would love to. This has been so much fun. So readers... Go out there and get this book. It's available everywhere. You know, if you, I hate this word Google, but we use it all the time because it sounds raunchy. But if you Google me, White House, White House Wild Child, it'll come up with all kind of places you can get the book immediately. So thank you, dear. I really appreciate your letting me chat on like this. Absolutely, you be brilliant today. Okay. Thank you, dear.